Welcome back to the Growing Patriot Podcast. Last time, we talked to Thomas Jefferson all about what it was like to write the Declaration of Independence. Well, now that independence had been declared, it was time to take it. And that meant war. Were American colonists ready for war? What kind of weapons did we have? What kind of weapons did the British have? Did we have any chance of winning? Today, we talk to a firearms expert about the kind of weapons that each side had and what that meant for victory. And remember, for this episode, just like every single episode, there are videos, pictures, coloring pages, and lots of other resources at growingpatriots.com. So be sure to visit there to find all the cool stuff we talk about in today's episode. My name is Ashley Levinsky, and I am a firearms historian. So what that means is a lot of different things, but uh, most recently I ran an entire gun museum in the state of Wyoming. So one really cool job that you can get if you're interested in history is working in a museum or at a historic site. And so I've done a little bit of both in my career, but I rebuilt one of the largest firearms museums in the United States. And I was able to test out all kinds of cool simulators for the museum, as well as doing the different displays and handling historic artifacts. And then as a firearms historian, I also work on a lot of different projects. So I work on a lot of court cases that include uh, firearms and ammunition for you know, criminal cases as well as you know, different types of liability cases. And I do a lot of TV. So Gosh. if you a historian, uh, you have to work really hard and get a lot of different internships, but there's a lot of different avenues that you can pursue. And I'm fortunate I get to do a little bit of all of them. Yeah, it sounds like fun. Yeah. Um, okay, well, let's just jump right in. In our last episode, we had the Declaration of Independence signed and Thomas Jefferson joined us to tell us all about it. So now the revolution is on. And I want to talk to you a little bit about what kind of weapons, you know, the um, Continental Army had, what the British Army had. You know, was there was there any chance that we were actually going to win this? Well, that's a, that's a really complicated <laughs> Um, but it, it's kind of an interesting thing because if you think about leading up to the revolution, what did the colonists have in terms of firepower? And probably the most common type of firearm that you saw in the colonies that a civilian would own um, would be something like a long rifle. Uh, or if they had fought in some of the earlier French and Indian wars, um, they might have a musket from their time in service doing, uh, working with the British. And so they may have some different types of British firearms. But in the colonies, we really didn't have, you know, manufacturing facilities like they had in England that were making all different kinds of muskets and infantry arms. So really, a civilian, if they wanted to own a gun, it was a multi-purpose tool for them in the colonies. So you had an individual gunsmith that would make the firearm, and then this would be a firearm that you would use not only for defense 
but also for hunting so that you could feed your family. Um, and also really, really early on in the colonies, so before the revolution, there were uh, shooting competitions. So you would also use your rifle um, for what they called rifle frolics, where the earliest shooting competitions. So you were using kind of one gun for many purposes. And the interesting thing about that firearm is it was most likely, unless it was a uh, former military arm, was most likely rifle. And a lot of people don't realize that rifling was around during the time of the revolution. And when I say rifling, um, basically what that means is there's this spiral that goes on inside the barrel, kind of like when you throw a football, and it makes the firearm more accurate. And so if you were a civilian wanting to own a firearm, you would prefer to have a rifle because accuracy is really important in hunting. Um, if you were a target shooter, obviously you want accuracy. And so it was something that civilians tended to own more than the military. And the reason behind that was because while it was more accurate, it was more expensive. Um, and it was also way slower to load. So if you're trying to fire, you know, three shots in a minute, you're not going to get that with a rifle. And so it just wasn't cost effective or feasible for the way that we fought wars. So civilians really, at this point, they've got kind of their own personal guns that they use for a bunch of different things, but they don't have, you know, an armory, a stock of firearms and when the war breaks out. And so the way that they go about getting firearms is they steal them a lot of the cases so in the case of you know colonial williamsburg when the royal governor um you know flees out the back of his mansion there's this whole room in the front of the governor's palace that's covered in guns and so the colonists break in and they steal the guns and they overtake the magazine where you've got firearms and ammunition you really have anything you need so they do start stealing a lot of the british firearms and then they also ultimately get firearms from the french and that's usually what you you often hear about with you know the American side of the revolution um, and then they also started they did start building their own firearms a little bit um, through kind of these shadow governments that they called um, committees of safety and so you did get some of their building but they they basically had to do whatever they could to get enough firepower to fight the British because the British owned the guns. They, you know, taxed the gunpowder, which was part of the things that led up to the revolution. And so in order to get enough firepower to fight the British, they had to get really creative. Uh, tactics are a whole nother thing. <laughs> sure. So then the British would have had access to probably newer things, um, maybe more technologically advanced, although they weren't rifled, like you said, and just they had more of a supply when things, if something broke or was lost or stolen. <laughs> it, at that point, you know, it's quantity over quality in terms of warfare. Um, usually when you learn about the American Revolution, you learn that the British had the brown best musket. Um, and that was, um, you know, that was pretty technologically advanced for the time. And it was a, a smooth bore, so it did not have rifling. And the reason that rifling wasn't needed in those kind of early wars, really up through the Civil War, is because a lot of those soldiers fought side to side. Um, so you really were trying to fire, you know, as many rounds, you know, towards the enemy as you could, but the accuracy component of it wasn't necessarily 
necessary. So you always see the brown vest musket as kind of the, the gun of choice for the infantry and, by the British. But they did, they, they also were looking at other types of firearms. So the lesser known firearms that they did have during, around this time period, um, they were looking at the idea of what's called a breech loading firearm. So muskets, you have to load your powder, your projectile individually down the end of the barrel of the gun. So you have to stand it vertical, and load it all down, and that's very, very slow. When you think about a firearm today, you think about the fact that you load it, you know, kind of towards the back of the gun. And that is something that's way more common now, but was not super common back then, but they were experimenting with that, and there were regiments during the revolution that had that, um, that the U.S. soldiers wouldn't have. Um, and, and yeah, supply is, you know, the, the, the <laughs> most and most important thing that you could possibly have. Now, like I said, the, Americans had, they did have brown vests because they stole them, um, but they also, they, you tend to talk about the French Charleville musket, which is kind of the French version of the brown vest. And the French Charleville musket is so important to American soldiers during the revolution that when we start building our own guns after the, we win our independence, um, we actually base our first firearms on the French Charleville musket. So that's how important it was to us. But how different were they? There were some differences. So typically a French musket was what's called 69 caliber um, and a brown vest was often a 75 caliber. So a little bit bigger um, there, but they that some of them changed in their caliber, but they were both what was called a flintlock and any gun really from this time period would have been a flint lock. And the way that that operates basically is you have this piece of flint, which is like a stone, and it's sharpened. So you sharpen it up and you put it into the jaws of a mechanism that you're able to pull back, press your trigger, and that, that mechanism falls forward onto a piece of steel and the sharpened flint creates a spark which ignites gunpowder to fire the gun. Now, if you were somebody that didn't necessarily, you were just kind of trying to you know, pick up your gun and fight in the war, you may have a gun from an earlier war, which would be a different kind of thing. But, uh, but for the most part, you had this, a similar type of technology. Okay. Now you talked about when you load it, you know, the, the um, gunpowder and the projectile. So what, what were bullets like? What was ammunition? So the ammunition is really important in this because it explains why rifling was not really as as uh, successful as people like to say it was during the revolution, although it was important to the revolution. Um, so the type of ammunition you had during this time period was a round musket ball. If you're familiar with more modern ammunition, you know it kind of looks more like a cone. Um, but back then, they just had round musket balls. So they would carry their powder separately. They'd carry their musket ball. Um, and the musket ball was something that didn't pick up rifling as easily as something that's a little bit more cone shaped. So it still worked with rifling, but in order for it to work, it had to fit perfectly in the barrel. And to fit perfectly meant it kind of had to be shoved down the barrel with uh, an external piece called a ramrod. And so it took longer to get it down because if it didn't, if it wasn't that tight, then it wouldn't pick up the rifling and it wouldn't matter. Um, so with a lot of the times the soldiers were making their own musket balls when they were out on the battlefield and they had molds for them uh, most of the time to make them all one size, but that didn't always happen. And so you didn't need that kind of accuracy with a musket ball so you could load it a lot faster down the barrel. Um, but you had to be really careful with a lot of these things. 
you had to keep your powder dry, uh, which a lot of people talk about. You may have heard that expression um, because you were putting your powder in two different parts of the firearm. So when you go to load your firearm, you have to stand your firearm upright and you pour your powder down the barrel and then you take your musket ball with a piece of what they call wadding. So it's kind of like a paper cloth um, to help it seat snugly and you take your ramrod and you shove it all down to the back of the gun and at the back of the gun there's a hole that comes out to where that mechanism was I was just talking about. And so you're actually going to put powder there too. Um, and you have to be really careful because if it's raining <laughs> or if you turn your gun sideways, the powder can fall out and then you can't really, you know, fire the gun. But the thought is, is the spark hits the powder that's outside the gun and it goes inside the gun where there's more powder, which fires. Um, and so it was not an exact science back then. And there was a lot of inaccuracy with the gun and it didn't always go off and so that's why you wanted to make sure you could load pretty quickly um, because if the gun wasn't going off and you had to make modifications you wanted to make sure that you had kind of everything in play. Sure. When when you talked about firing quickly and how long it takes to load, you know, now if, if you and I go shooting with a modern gun or if you see it on TV or in a movie, we're used to what's called semi-automatic where they just you know, bullet after bullet just will go. And that is certainly not how it was then. So how, how slow was it? How, how quickly could you shoot a couple of rounds? What was it like? With traditional firearms, like the muskets, they always usually say they, you know, historians say about three shots a minute is kind of the standard. Uh, with a musket, uh, maybe about one shot a minute with your rifle. But you also have to think about the fact that these were, especially when you think about U.S. or the colonists, um, some of them for sure fought in past wars for the British, but a lot of them really weren't that well trained initially. And think about being, you know, a teenager. <laughs> and having this super polished British army coming at you. And now you've got, you know, gunfire, you've got cannons, you've got smoke, you're scared. You know, you're trying to fidget with powder and a projectile and everything. And so if you were good, you could get maybe three shots a minute. And that was the standard, I think, for the British army. But if you were a scared kid, which I'm sure you had on both sides, you know, you're gonna start to kind of, you know, mess up and not be able to load as fast. Because when something about when you get stressed, you start losing your, uh, you know, what they call fine motor skills. So your fingers, you know, you, you, you struggle and you can drop things and, you know, you may not be able to load as fast. So that's what you always hear in the history books. And that is true and it's, and it is possible and these people did get trained up. But if you're terrified, I mean, kind of all the statistics go out the window. Yeah, that makes sense. Maybe, maybe more like one or two a minute while you're trying to make it work, while people are coming at you from the other side. But people, didn't realize that the shot didn't go off and so they loaded again there were multiple musket balls in there and that blew up the you know the end of the gun and I mean it's just it's kind of hard to know what's going on in the chaos of everything and that's also one thing that's important to understand with soldiers during the American Revolution especially on the colonist side is the fact that these weren't trained people and they had to bring in you know officers to ultimately train them because we didn't do so well early on, <laughs> you know, fighting up against the British. I mean, it was really kind of an underdog story there. Yeah, we were up against the best military in the world. Just little old America. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so if I can, the rifle always gets talked about with 
the military. But they were using the rifle in a very different way um, than we were using muskets. So I said muskets are shoulder to shoulder fighting, you know, soldiers in a line. Um, but with the riflemen units, it was a little bit different. You still could use it that traditional way, but a lot of the success of the rifle that you saw during the American Revolution on the colonist side that did, you know, make the, the British kind of concerned was the sharpshooting that went on. So kind of the early example of the sniper. So if you needed to take out an individual individual officer, an individual um, enemy soldier, um, and not needing the speed because you're off at a distance, that's where the rifle really came into play. But the concern about the rifle was if you had a rifleman unit up against a, a British infantry unit, and they had not only the quickness in loading, but they could close in on you with bayonets. Um, which, you know, were kind of these not really sharp, but pointy, you know, swords, almost tiny little knives that you put on the end of your, your gun. You know, that, if you had a bunch of people charging at you with that and you were very slow to load, that's where the rifleman unit started to not be as successful. Okay. okay. Now, we've, you've mentioned bayonets and rifles and muskets, and there was a brief mention of cannon. But what was that? What were cannon like on, on the different sides? Oh gosh, um, I gotta pull out my artillery. Well, <laughs> but uh, so, so you had a lot of different types of cannons during the, the revolution, and I say cannon, um, but really you had um, a cannon, something like uh, what you think of with a cannon with its carriage, and it's this big long kind of tube, and, and if you think about it, cannons in and of themselves, they had different names, predated the handheld firearm. So those have been you know, around and used on the battlefield since the 1200s, maybe, even, and even earlier than that. So that's been around, and that technology's been modified, um, but the, you've got your traditional long tube cannon, but then you also have mortars and howitzers. Um, so those are two other different types of artillery. Um, and they're like cannons, you know, they, they're stationary, you know, they don't move as much. Um, but the, the howitzer's a little bit smaller and the mortar's a little bit smaller than that. Um, and so the cannon can fire a little bit more direct line, whereas a mortar, it's kind of this little tiny thing that can shoot up and over um, if you needed it on the battlefield so you get a bunch of different types of artillery um, but think about that's something that you know if you're trying to uh, breach a fort or you're trying to you know cause uh, issue at distance that's where you really see a lot of the cannon fire because they you know usually multiple soldiers had to operate them they weren't moving out of the way very fast and so that was just kind of a supplemental thing that you saw um, on battlefield. But that was something that the colonists had too. It wasn't wasn't just the British with their cannon, and we were. Would we have had those from earlier wars? I'm trying to think about we. Yeah, we we probably had cannons. Uh, I never really thought about it. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, okay. Well, I will admit I don't know anything about cannons. So, is a cannonball? I, as a fire. <laughs> And artillery is probably uh, my at least comfortable subject. Like <laughs> any cannon in my. <laughs> fun. Um, so is a cannonball similar to a musket ball? What is, is it just bigger or are they? It, yeah, it can be. So cannons in general, so not just speaking about the revolution, mm -hmm. there's a lot of different types of cannon of projectiles that can come out of the cannonballs. Um, but yeah, a, a lot of times it was a round, big, big, big musket ball. But you could also put a fuse in the cannonball if you wanted it to explode. Um, and there's different kinds of like 
chain linked uh, cannonball projectiles. So there's multiple projectiles going out there. And so that's like, we don't even need to get Gosh, into the Yeah, getting fancy. <laughs> so many types. But yeah, they could just be a traditional kind of big, big, big musket ball, but they can also be uh, like a grenade going out of the gun as well. Wow. So, yeah. and this is with the bullets as well. Is that something that they would have made themselves? Were they making their own ammunition? What's interesting about making the making of ammunition, yes, everyone was making their own ammunition for the most part, and there were molds for it, but one of the coolest stories that I um, have heard from Colonial Williamsburg, uh, you'll have to forgive me, Colonial Williamsburg is one of my favorite places. Oh my gosh, me too. I, I understand. <laughs> East Coast originally, so like I would go to Williamsburg every year. Um, I, I, but there was uh, the silversmith in Colonial Williamsburg. And so when you talk about all hands on deck for the war, we really mean all hands on deck. So it's not like there was just like someone that focused in musket balls. Silversmiths would make musket balls. And one of the silversmiths that um, existed and was alive during the time of the revolution was making kind of in the back room musket balls for the soldiers. And really, you you know, ultimately, you, you could melt down anything you really had around you. It would be a pretty expensive musket ball. But you did get people from other trades also trying to, you know, kind of stack the deck so that we had enough ammunition. Interesting. So with everyone fighting, we usually picture a man or even a boy out there with their weapons. What about women? Were they in the battle? One thing that's really interesting about kind of the role of women throughout US, uh, early U.S. wars is that oftentimes women would travel with encampments um, and they would you know, help make ammunition and they would help, um, you know, provide food for the camp and take care of people. But then you also get the occasional story of women dressing up as men on the battlefield. And that, you know, that's always kind of a fascinating component of it. But you, when you think about battles, you often think about only men being out and around. Uh, but women were very kind of involved in a lot of different levels when you think about it. So if you've got women dressing as men, but you've also got women helping with the camps, but then you also have women who are spies, which is pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> when you think about it, um, you know, there are women during the revolution who are spies um, passing messages, you know, to the colonists and doing recon work, you know, for the colonists. And if you think about, you know, kind of the way women were, you know, what women, how women were treated back then, you know, they weren't, you know, ultimately when independence was sought, it was for men, um, you know, and so a woman could sneak by pretty easily and, and go undetected, unnoticed in a lot of those circumstances, you know, oh, just women, you know, there's just a woman, we can say whatever we sure. want. That, those women were taking those tidbits of information and yeah. telling colonists and the soldiers so that they had a lot of, you know, good intel on the British soldiers. And so you know, it, it is weird when you think about military history, how often it feels so masculine. And that is because of who's fighting the wars, you know, and, and women dressing up as men is more of an anomaly, but they are very, they're very much around, they're very much involved. And the fact that there's a respect enough for women to involve them in intel shows you that, you know, even though times were very different for women back then, I mean, they knew that they were you know, good enough to be able to be trusted with a lot of those secrets. And, um, you know, there's, there is a story, and I've never seen if it's been debunked or not, but there's a, a girl associated with doing a ride similar to, you know, Paul Revere. Um, and, and so, yeah, women were kind of all over the place with it. It's just, I think what happens it, as a historian, if I can judge historians for a second, we're usually dudes, um, you know, 
talk about what you know. <laughs> but at the same time, so often military history is so obsessed with the firearms and how we yes. fought the war and mm -hmm. the, the tactics behind it that we often forget the social history behind how it actually went down. And the cool thing nowadays is that social military history is like really popular. And so now you can study military history and not need to study, you know, how you train your horse to do, you know, different cavalry, you know, steps, yeah. but you learn about you know the encampments and how important the encampments were and these people that traveled along with the soldiers and how essential they were and so it's it's one of those things you don't hear about a lot but is a new field in history in the past you know 10 or so years that is kind of wide open if you're looking at things you might want to study there's always something new to be studied and I don't know I study guns but I mean I always find the social history really fascinating yeah, and I'm actually a social historian, but you know, I always, it's the same thing. No matter what you study, there's always something new to learn. There's always a new way to look at it. It's, it's just always fun. Oh yeah, it's, it's really, really cool. And then finding those little tidbits that you don't realize, you know, are, are a part of such, I don't want to call American Revolution history boring history, but you know, like history, you know, history class history, you know, just the fact and, and not a lot of kind of the human behind it. Yeah. So it is cool to learn about those because I think it makes history a lot more interesting for, for adults and kids. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think this was a great overview of firearms and weapons during the American Revolution. And I really appreciate you joining us today. Thanks for having me. It was fun. was so interesting. I loved learning about what kind of weapons we had, what the British had, and how everybody pitched in to help. Here's what we learned. First, we learned there are a ton of cool jobs for people who love history. There are people like Ashley who work in museums and get to testify in trials and go on TV to talk about all the cool things they know. There are teachers, people who work in historic houses, people who write books, even people like me who do a podcast. But okay, here's what we learned about the weapons of the American Revolution. Most families at least had one gun that they could use for defense or for hunting to feed their families or even for target shooting competitions. This was probably a rifle, but some people who had fought with the British in the French and Indian War might have had a musket left over. We just had some local gunsmiths who could make guns, maybe something left over from a previous war or things that had been imported a while back from Britain but they were able to manufacture a lot more guns, so they had a greater supply. That meant that sometimes we would just take them. After all, we were fighting a war and we needed weapons. As the war went on, the colonists were able to make more guns of their own and the French helped us by supplying us with weapons. But those weapons were nothing like you see today. In fact, if you were very, very good at loading a musket, you might be able to shoot three times in a minute. Imagine shooting, and then having to count to 20 in the middle of a war before you could shoot again. I bet that seems like an awfully long time. But still, against all the odds, the Americans won the war and won their independence. In the next few episodes, we're going to talk about the different battles, the different people, and what it was like to be in the middle of that incredible war. In the meantime, remember to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Growing Patriots on all three of those. And you can visit growingpatriots.com for more resources for every single episode and to check out the Growing Patriots books. 
see you next time. They freed us all from tyranny. We stand for liberty. And they thought so we would be America, land of the free. Distributed by FCB Radio Network.